The following is a sermon from Redemption Bible Chapel in London, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit redemptionlondon.ca. Good morning to everyone. It's good to be back with you. And let's continue to worship by taking God's Word now and turning to the book of Philippians chapter 1. The book of Philippians chapter 1. We have looked at Paul's greeting, verses 1 and 2. And we have considered Paul's prayer, verses 3 through 11. Pastor Norm walked you through those verses the past two Sundays. And now today we are going to consider together Paul's testimony, verses 12 through 26. John and Mary Patton. You may or may not be familiar with the names. I wasn't very familiar with the names until I read of them in a, in a book describing some missionaries of long ago. And they were indeed missionaries back in the 19th century. In 1858, John and Mary Patton left their homeland of Scotland, and they set sail for the island of Tanna near Fiji. I had to look that one up. Near Fiji in the South Pacific. And this island, no mission, no church, no gospel witness, not even one believer. This was to be a pioneer work as this young couple, newlyweds actually, made the long, arduous journey from Scotland to the island of Tanna. And upon arriving, they quickly erected a home, very simple. And within a few weeks, Mary gave birth to their first son, their first child. And within two months after that, both mother and child were dead. And John, with his own hands, by himself, dug the grave and buried his wife and infant son and then proceeded to spend several nights sleeping by the grave to protect their bodies from cannibals. Uh, this was the environment in which he was ministering. Uh, as he reflected on it years later, he wrote the following, uh, if not for Jesus, I would have gone mad and died beside that lonely grave. If not for Jesus, I would have gone mad and died beside that lonely grave. He went on to marry again, raise a family, and enjoyed many years of fruitful service and labor in the South Pacific. But as I've read and learned of John and Mary Patton, what has really struck me and made a deep impression upon me was Mary's last recorded words. And it was John who made note of this and relates that uh, just before his, his wife passed away, she whispered the following to him, I do not regret leaving home and friends. If I had to do it over again, I would do it with more pleasure. Yes, I would do it with all my heart. How could that woman say such a thing? I want an answer to that question. What made her tick? What was her drive, her motivation? 
What enabled her, strengthened her to utter such a sentiment? I do not regret leaving home and friends. If I had to do it over again, I would do it with more pleasure. Yes, with all my heart. Turn with me to God's word where we find an answer. Picking it up in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. How could she utter such a statement? Listen closely, listen carefully. As we turn to God's word now, the testimony of the Apostle Paul, and we find an answer to our question. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that his, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that, this is going to prove very difficult, there we go, <laughs> knowing that I am put here. Either someone has a good sense of humor or that was a total accident, either way. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Back with me to the 18th verse. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Please remember the context. The man's in jail. The man has completed his third missionary journey. He's gone off to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, he has been arrested. And there have been plots to take his life. 
He knows he's not going to receive a fair trial. And so as a Roman citizen, he has appealed to Caesar, which was his right. And he has made that long, difficult journey from Jerusalem to Rome. And there he now sits a prisoner awaiting his trial. And in the midst of it all, I rejoice. And I will rejoice. From that, I conclude the following. That insofar as the Apostle Paul is concerned, joy is not dictated nor determined by his circumstances. It is dictated and determined by Christ. That is a difficult lesson. That is an extremely hard lesson. To come to this realization, this point, where joy is not contingent upon our circumstances. It is not determined by our condition, our lot in life. It is determined by Christ. Notice firstly, Paul rejoices as long as Christ is proclaimed. We get that in verses 12 through 18. Right back to verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being arrested and being transported under guard to Rome and sitting here now awaiting trial, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And he goes on to tell us how in verses 13 and 14. He tells us firstly that now being here in Rome and being a prisoner, I've had an opportunity to preach to people whom I would never have been able to reach. Now I have an opportunity to proclaim Christ among the imperial guard. And not only that, other brothers and sisters having heard of my imprisonment, well, they have now been strengthened in the faith. And in boldness, they're now proclaiming Christ. I know some of them, their motives aren't the best. He tells us that in verse 15. But I really don't care what their motive is. As long as Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice. And he makes it clear, secondly, he rejoices as long as Christ is honored. The very last statement in verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that is the Holy Spirit, this, my imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance. And so Paul actually expects to be delivered. I mean, really, his trial could go either way. He could be exonerated. He could be executed. But he expects to be released. He expects to live. But either way, what is his desire? Verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. It makes no difference to me. My great heartbeat and impulse is this, that Christ be honored that people know that Christ is preeminent in my life, that people recognize that Christ is exalted above all else in my life, and I rejoice as long as he's proclaimed and as long as he is honored. And thirdly, I rejoice as long as he is served. Verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, 
And so if I am released, it won't be so that I can try to earn as much money as I possibly can, maximize my earning potential. It won't be so that I can then embark on collecting as many toys as I possibly can in life. It won't be so that I could work so that I can have as much leisure time as possible and pursue my hobbies and recreation. No, if God grants me release, if my trial leads to my exoneration, if I live, yes, in the flesh, what does it mean, verse 22? It means fruitful labor, service. It will be a further opportunity to serve Christ. I don't know which to choose, he says there at the end of verse 22. Into verse 23, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart. I want to be with Christ. It's far better. But what's his conclusion, verse 24? To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. God still has work for me to do. My Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will still be served through me. And therefore, whatever is going on in life, it doesn't really matter. I rejoice, and I will rejoice as long as he is proclaimed, as long as he is honored, as long as he is served, and fourthly, as long as he is glorified. Verse 25, convinced of this, convinced that Christ still has work for me to do. Convinced that I will remain, he says there in verse 25, and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so my release will serve this purpose that I might be able to continue to serve among the people of God. That Christ might still be well pleased to use me in some way, some manner, some fashion that his people might make progress. They might grow and rejoice in the faith that ultimately his people might glory in him whereby he is glorified above all else in their lives. Why does Paul rejoice? How does Paul rejoice given his depressing circumstances in life? He rejoices because he lives according to one principle, one principle alone, and it is summed up tremendously there. You'll notice I skipped over it as we made our way through it. Verse 21 for to me, to live is Christ. And to die, it's gain. And as long as he is proclaimed, as long as he is honored, as long as he is served, and as long as he is glorified, oh, I will rejoice. Because for me to live is Christ. Can I really say that? I'm not asking you if you can really say that, although that's a very important question as well. I'm wondering this morning if I can say that. For to me to live is Christ. That truth is supported 
right? It's rooted. That's a better expression. It's rooted in two tremendous realities. For to me to live is Christ. Here's the first reality. It's because I belong to Christ. I'm not independent. As a Christian, I'm not free to do whatever I want. I'm not at liberty to choose whatever path I like. As a Christian, I belong to someone else. I am Christ's by purchase. 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And the price was the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. For me to live is Christ because I am not my own. I am bought with a price. And not only am I his by purchase, but I am his by conquest. Colossians 1, he has delivered me from the domain of darkness and transferred me to the kingdom of his beloved son. The king has conquered me. He has conquered death and sin and the devil and all that had hold on me. And the king has claimed me as his own and taken possession of me. I belong to him. Not only do I belong to him by purchase and by conquest, but I belong to him by union. He has taken me as his spouse. I am married to Christ, knit together with Christ, whereby we now constitute one body, as Paul words it in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ by union, by covenant, by marriage, we belong to him, therefore form to me to live is Christ. The second extremely important reality is this. For me to live is Christ. Why? Because I live in Christ. So Paul makes this so explicit in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I live in Christ. It simply means the following. I believe, I know that Christ was crucified for me. He gave himself up for me upon Calvary's cross. I know that having believed in him, I have been crucified with Christ. That in God's reckoning, I died when he died. I was crucified when he was crucified. I wasn't there. It's not me literally or physically, but because I am one with him, God reckons to me, he imputes to me, he counts to me that which Christ did on my behalf. And believing I have been crucified with Christ daily, I see myself hanging on the cross. And what do I seek to do? I seek to live accordingly. Which means what? For me to live is 
is Christ. That is the great impulse of my soul. That is the key. That is the foundation for Paul's joy, this, this, this ability to, to celebrate, to rejoice, not in what he was going through, not denying the reality of the pain and the suffering, not minimizing the difficulty and the stress and the fear and everything else that undoubtedly perplexed him, but in the midst of it all, being able to say, I rejoice. I rejoice. Why? Because for me to live is Christ. And Christ is proclaimed. Christ is honored. Christ is served. And Christ is glorified. Let me pause and ask you, did you get all that? That's the text. That's the text. Now don't think for a moment we're done here. We're nowhere near done. But that's the text. And as I have reflected on this passage for the past three or four weeks and just meditated upon it, and just, really just wrestling with this question, well, what does this mean? What's the significance of this? What are the implications I, I, I want to speak pastorally to you, all right? Pastorally. And what I, what I really want to do is I want to speak to just four of you, four kinds of people. At one time, I had 10. I had to whittle away at this one over the past couple of weeks, I tell, I'll tell you. Uh, just four. I just want to speak to four kinds of people today and I want this truth for me to live as Christ just to sink, to, to sink deep down in our hearts and really take root and marinate, if you like, and, and begin to influence us and impact us and shape us. And the first person I want to speak to is this, the unbeliever, the unbeliever. And there may only be one here today. In all likelihood, there are more. And that's wonderful. And as always, so glad, thrilled that you're here. But I want to speak to you for a moment, all right? And everyone else, just listen in. I want to speak to the unbeliever. For me to live is Christ. And here's what I want to say to you. You haven't started living yet. That's what I want to say to you. You think, you think you have, but in actual fact, you haven't. Not at all. You haven't even begun yet to live. The Bible makes this painfully clear. Paul himself makes this painfully clear. And we can go, for example, to Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul tells us that as unbelievers, we are what? We are dead in our trespasses and sins. I've got my watch here, and I'm going to have to keep one eye on the clock. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. I need to unpack that just for a moment for, for any unbelievers here, because you know, that makes absolutely no sense in the world's years today. Dead in my trespasses and sins. It's rather bizarre. What are you, what are you talking about? Um... Lots of reasons for that. I think one of the chief reasons is this. Uh, we now live in a world um, which explains everything from a naturalist worldview, right? Naturalism. It is the philosophy of the day. 
we live within the confines of the material world, the natural world, and there is nothing beyond those confines. Therefore, when it comes to explaining man, the individual, woman, when it comes to explaining human behavior, our world only has two options. There are only two options on the table. Either we explain it through the lens of biology or we explain it through the lens of psychology. That's all we've got. Those young people, those of you in the university and our believers, you want to listen to this too. It'll explain an awful lot. There are only two options on the table when it comes to explaining humanity. When it comes to explaining the human condition, human experience, human predicament, human behavior. Either we look at it through a biological lens or we look at it through a psychological lens. That's man. If we look at it through a biological lens, well, we attribute man's behavior, especially deviant behavior, bad behavior, to what? His genetic makeup. It's a product of his own biology. And the remedy for that, there is only one possible remedy. It is what? To alter his genetic makeup, a pill. That is what our society has to offer. If we look at man through the psychological lens, then any deviant behavior on his behalf is explained how? On the basis of society, his social environment. His father was unloving. His mother was domineering. His school was pathetic. His sixth grade teacher was negligent. Uh, he was oppressed. He was this, he was that. And therefore, he is the product of circumstances beyond his control, the product either of his genetic makeup or his social environment, a pill for the one, therapy for the other. And all the while, we turn the individual into a victim rather than what he really is, which is a villain. At least that's what the Bible says. Because the Bible does not attribute our problems either to our genetic makeup nor our social environment. The Bible attributes our problem to but one thing, our own heart. The heart is deceitfully wicked. The Bible is very careful when it comes to terminology and its use of words. It uses the word iniquity quite often. And when it uses that word iniquity, it is referring to the condition of the human heart. And it is telling it to us that at just at the most basic, fundamental level, there is something wrong with the heart. The wiring is off. All is not well. There is an inclination in each one of us from the moment of conception. There is this inclination away from God to the exaltation of self, which is ultimately idolatry. I can best illustrate this as I just think of this now. Years ago, I was maybe 12 years of age, and we were vacationing. We were, we were back visiting family, actually, in Scotland, and on a warm summer evening, my, my father took me to the center of the town, the village where we were, and there was a green, a lawn in the middle of it, and uh, people would come and they would play lawn bowling. I know that's kind of a senior thing, but back then it was something people of all ages would do. It's the only time I've ever played lawn bowling, and it was quite fascinating. You get these bowls, right, around objects, and if you've ever handled one, you, you know this, it's weighted. There's lead on one side of it. And so if the lead is on this side, as you throw that bowl down the lawn, it's going to move three or four feet that way. It's going to break. If you put the lead on this side and throw it, it is going to break three or four feet this way. What's my point? My point is simply this. You can never throw the thing straight. You can do it a million times. Throw it as hard as you want, as soft as you want. Put this, all the spin on it you want. You can never throw the thing straight. 
Why? Because it is weighted. It is inclined to go a certain direction. That's the human heart. That's iniquity. It is not straight. It is inclined a certain way. And it is inclined away from God to self. And because of our propensity to love ourselves and exalt ourselves and to elevate our own selfish desires, this then shapes all that we do, say, and think. And the Bible describes that as sin at times, meaning in our words and our thoughts and our deeds, we fall short of what God requires of us, which is what? To love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. We fall so far short of that. It is sin. And the Bible uses a third word. It is trespass. Transgression. It's not only that we fall so far short of what God requires of us. But we consciously and deliberately disobey. Transgress. Trespass. His will which he has made so abundantly clear. In Scripture. Oh, I've belabored that, friend. I've belabored that, but it is so necessary. If, if you're an unbeliever, you're not a Christian. I know it's not pleasant to think about. I won't pretend otherwise. But you need to come to grips with this. The condition of your heart. The condition of your heart. Who you are. And what you are before a holy God. And when you come to grips with the condition of your heart in all honesty, you'll start to look for help outside of yourself. And the only place you'll find help is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who delivered himself up for our sins, our trespasses, and our iniquity, the one who hung upon Calvary's cross as a substitute for sinners, the one who bore the full penalty and weight and burden and condemnation for our sin in himself as he hung upon that cross. The one who rose again victorious over the grave. The one who by being raised from the dead declared how pleased his father was and is in him and in his finished work. And the one whom his father now offers to all who will receive him. All who will believe him in him. And by believing in him, becoming one with him. By becoming one with him, knowing for certain that he gets our sin. And he's dealt with it at Calvary's cross. And by becoming one with him, we now get his perfect righteousness. Which makes us accepted and beloved and beautiful in the sight of God himself. And this certainty that God welcomes us in the Lord Jesus. He forgives us in the Lord Jesus. He's well pleased with us in the Lord Jesus. Oh, for me to live is Christ. Do you know him, friend? If not, oh, take seriously his claims. Look seriously into your own heart and your own predicament. Consider what, what awaits eternity. You stand at this great juncture with eternity before you, beckoning. And think of Christ's own invitation, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. That is my word to the unbeliever. 
The second person I want to speak to this morning is this, the careless Christian. The careless Christian. For me to live is Christ. You know who you are. I'm going to hazard a guess that most of us who are Christians would probably put ourselves in that category at some point in our Christian journey. The careless Christian. Speaking to that man, that woman, uh, there, you're, you're sitting there right now and, you're, and you're, you're following what I'm saying. You get, okay, for me to live is Christ. Yeah, sounds good. Resonates a little bit. But as you just stop and take stock right now, you know you can't really say that. Come on, with all honesty and sincerity, you know you can't really say that. You know because you know how you're living, right? You know because for some days now, some weeks, maybe even some months, you've been indulging in sin. You have been consciously disobeying the Lord. You have been wandering from the way. In Pilgrim's language of centuries ago, you, you are in bypath meadow, and you're not on the straight and narrow. This is the question I want you to consider, and it may just be one, it may just be one person. I, I'm speaking to you pastorally, and I beg you, I plead with you to, to answer this question seriously, all honesty. What occupies your secret thoughts? Really, what occupies your secret thoughts? What stirs your strongest emotions? Your answer is the greatest thing in your life. Have you got it? Careless Christian, do you have the answer? If it's not Christ, I'll tell you right now what it is. It might be pleasure, success, beauty, sex, approval, control, sports, wealth, popularity, Fame, acceptance, beauty, and on and on we could go. Speaking to the careless Christian, I'm not doing this again to pick a fight or to be harsh or to be severe, but to be forthright with you. Just think it through. For to me to live is blank. Right now, honestly, what goes in the blank? For to me to live, what drives me right now, what I want above all else right now, what I think about the most, what I desire the most, for to me to live is blank. Well, here is my word to you. You need to remember. You need to remember Christ agonizing in the garden. And you need to think of your sins which led him into such bloody agony. You need to remember Christ naked upon the cross and remember that he covers your sins with his perfect righteousness. You need to remember Christ's cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And think of how he suffered the torment of hell in your place. You need to remember Christ's death and consider your sin, that idol, which caused him such agony. You need to remember the earthquake 
that caused the earth to tremble and think how you deserve to descend into hell rather than have any part in the merit of Christ. Careless Christian, does it stir something? Right? Does it? I trust it does. I trust it stirs something. It awakens something. That as we look at Christ and his agony and his suffering and his cross and understood what drove him there. Yes, his love for me and my sin that drove him there. Sin's not something to be trifled with. Not something to be toyed with. And as we look with fresh eyes, the eyes of faith upon the Lord Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us, does it not compel us to tear down that idol, to confess that sin, to repent of it definitively. Careless Christian, I need to be careful here. I need to be cautious here. But I'm going to, I'm going to say it, and I, I trust it will be well received. If this glimpse of the Lord Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us, does not stir something in you, if you do not feel some conviction for the sin that has a grip on you, the life perhaps that you've been living, the idol that you have been stroking, so to speak, if nothing is stirred, then we must question whether or not you're even a Christian. We must get far more rudimentary then in terms of the questions we're asking. And perhaps it is you must look to the cross for the first time. And really come to grips for the first time with who the Lord Jesus is. What the Lord Jesus has done. And the claim the Lord Jesus Christ has upon you. Oh, for to me to live is Christ. That is my word to the careless Christian. There was a third person to whom I was going to speak this morning, but time does not permit I'm going to move on to number four. And this is the one that concerns me actually pastorally most of all. I want to speak this morning to the troubled Christian, the fearful Christian, the anxious Christian. For to me to live is Christ. To die is gain. To live is Christ. I live in him and I belong to him. Life has me down. Dashed dreams, broken marriages, passing years, wayward children, failing health. Now, for me to live is Christ. Paul points us in a beautiful direction, and it is a verse I don't think we celebrate and take to heart enough. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21. Here it is. All things are yours. He's speaking to believers. All things are yours. Life, death, the present, and the future. All are yours because you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. It means life is ours, all of it. Every moment, every day, every year, every event, every relationship, every success, every failure, every emotion, every thought, 
conversation, experience, and the list is endless. It is all ours. Nothing is purposeless, nothing is pointless, and nothing is meaningless. God is the author and sustainer of all life. And God is the author of every circumstance of life. And God uses all of life to reveal his glory to us. Life is ours. Death is ours. The day of death is in God's hands. It serves us by ushering us into Christ's presence. It doesn't terrify us. It doesn't control us. It doesn't master us. Its sting has been removed. Oh, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Why is death gain? Because I get more of Christ. That's why it's gain. We leave sorrow for happiness, turmoil for peace, shame for glory, labor for rest, the cross for the crown. Not only is life mine, not only is death mine, but the very present, it's mine, it's ours as Christians. God governs all things according to the counsel of his will. This includes sad moments, happy moments, fearful moments, lonely moments, pleasant moments, working moments, sleeping moments. We are not slaves of time or chance. Everything serves one ultimate end, to make us glorious in Christ. And not only is the present ours, but the future is ours. It belongs to us. God is beyond all time and space and dwells in one unapproachable light and moment in eternity. He knows nothing of before or after. Above all succession of time, God is inhabiting one indivisible moment in time. He knows nothing of before or after because we belong to him. Oh, the future which he holds in his hand is ours. One day he will miraculously gather together the scattered molecules of our decayed bodies and fashion them into imperishable bodies. Scripture tells us that our glorified bodies will be like the shining of the moon and of the stars. Oh, troubled Christian, take heart, right? Life has got you down. You may very well have a good reason to be feeling down. And the difficulties of life seem insurmountable. And the problems, you just, you, you, you just can't catch your breath. You're in the valley, and there's no end of that valley in sight. And it's just oppressive. And despair has set in. Oh, my friend, to live is Christ. To live is Christ because we belong to Christ. We belong to Christ who belongs to God. And because we belong to God, my friend, life is yours. Death is yours. The present is yours. And the future is yours. It all serves God's good plans and purposes for you, which is to ultimately and finally glorify and magnify his son, Jesus Christ, in and through you. Oh, take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name. But his love abideth ever. 
through eternal years the same. Take the world, but give me Jesus. In his cross my trust shall be, till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, my Lord, I see. Where did we begin? On an island called Tana in the South Pacific with a saint of old, Mary Patton, whispering in her husband's ear, I do not regret leaving home and friends. If I had to do it over again, I would do it with more pleasure, yes, with all my heart. How was she able to say such a thing? The truth of God's word had sunk deep into her heart. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray for eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive. It is our earnest prayer that Christ might be exalted in our midst today. Christ proclaimed, Christ served, Christ glorified, Christ honored, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Oh, our Father, we do pray that by your Spirit you might do a work, a mighty work in our hearts and amongst us this day, turning the wayward sinner to the Lord Jesus to behold your glory in him and the wonders of the cross, turning the wandering saint back to the fold, back to the straight and narrow way, renewing his faith, renewing her faith in her confidence in the Lord. We pray encouraging the troubled saint, the fearful saint, the anxious saint, that we might for a moment lift our eyes off our circumstances and fix them upon the Lord Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us, and pause to consider all that you have in store for us. And with this, may our hearts be encouraged. With this work among us, may you be well pleased. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.